0: And then one day I just went, you know, love come down upon a sea. We are, we are, we are. And I went, oh, that sounds pretty good.
1: Welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential 90s musicians and where they are today. I'm Mike Hippel, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little bit deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in that book, as well as some artists whom I love and respect. Today's guest is the British singer-songwriter Ian McNabb. He may be best well-known in the States for his 1983 hit song, Whisper to a Scream," Birds Fly, with his band The Icicle Works. And I bet if you're of a certain age, the hook to that song is now stuck on repeat in your brain. And that may be the thing he's most well-known for in America, but he's had a wildly prolific career in music since, from playing with Neil Young and Ringo Starr to recording over 20 solo albums, including 2021's Utopian. He's got a deep catalog that's worth checking out. Today, Ian tells us about a couple of important moments in his life, from the moon to birds flying.
0: Pivotal moment in my life. There, there have been several. Um, the first one that I can remember, uh, still quite vividly, is um, in July. I've forgotten the date, 1969, when I was sleeping soundly in my bed at about four o'clock in the morning, and my dad came up to my room and dragged me out of bed and dragged me downstairs to watch a very scratchy picture of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. That's one small
1: step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
0: And uh, first of all, I was pretty freaked out because I'd never been up at four o'clock in the morning before consciously, obviously as a, a baby I would have been. And we sat and we watched Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on this really bad picture on the moon, and that was—I uh, was—I would have been eight when that happened, and that kind of really got me interested in something, uh, which was the, the the space race, the the Apollo program, and all of that stuff. And I became really fascinated with it all. I thought it was pretty incredible, and it, it to me as an eight-year-old. Obviously, kids are very open to to anything that's going on around them, and I I just thought, well, my future is going to be, uh, you know, like in the you know, when I'm twenty one years old or something like that, I'm going to be going to the moon for my holidays and, and stuff like that. That was a, that was a really pivotal moment for me. Of course, none of this came true, so we were kind of sold a dummy there really but that that's the first one i can remember and the second one which has had far more impact on on my life in the long term was um i wasn't particularly interested in music um up until about the age of 12 like i say i was into the uh the space program you know i had all the models of the the saturn vehicles and nasa memorabilia and all that kind of stuff and i was into uh, football or what you guys call soccer um and that was it for me and then i was going to school and music didn't really mean anything to me and then one evening and i think it was about 1971 or 1972 i was watching a tv show that we have over here called top of the pops which was a very big programme that used to go out at 7.30 on a Thursday night for half an hour, and it would have all the records that were in the, the top 20, top 30, sometimes top 40.
1: Hello, hi, welcome to Top of the Box.
0: And this guy came on with the long flowing corkscrew hair playing at this electric guitar that was shaped like a, I've later found out it was a Gibson flying V that he was playing and his name was Mark Bolan, and his band was T-Rex. And I can't remember if it was a song called Get It On, which in America was called Bang A Gong or a song called um, Hot Love, which, which had been a number one hit in 1971 over here. And then... I was like what the heck is this you know so that that put me on the path to wow that's something i could do maybe and then i immediately started badgering my parents for to buy me a you know a a cheap guitar and 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 that that's basically what set me off on, on the path that i'm still on today so there there you go you got two pivotal moments for one there so turned on by the, the, the achievements of the Apollo program and stuff. Obviously, that, that made me interested in doing something along those lines. You know, everybody wanted to be an astronaut or a footballer at that point. But, and I was pretty good at school. Um, I was always kind of in the top five in my class. And, I you know, I was attentive and pretty interested in it. And I knew that to do the stuff that I'd seen Neil and Buzz do, you had to be really smart, you know, you had to be able to fly jet aircraft, you had to be good at mathematics, you had to be good at physics and all of that kind of stuff. But I just wasn't, you know, um, I was always numerically challenged. I, I I just, I it just never sat with me. And I, as much as I wanted to be, great at physics and chemistry and all of those things that were required for that line of work, I just wasn't any damn good at it, you know? So that was a little bit of a worry. And then when the music bug bit me with the aforementioned T-Rex on top of the pops, I thought, well, you know, I think that's a lot easier than flying a, a, a jet aircraft or a spacecraft. So I, you know, got on to my parents and I said, listen, I'm really interested in this. And they were incredibly supportive. I'm an only child, no brothers or sisters. So I didn't have to fight for any space in that regard. And they, sure enough, they bought me um, a gut string Spanish acoustic guitar, which was actually pretty good for, um, you know, everybody, every musician always says that the first guitar they had was, you know, like a really horrible cheap thing and you could, you know, you could get your hand underneath the strings, the action, the strings was so far away from the neck of the guitar, which, I mean, you know, even as an accomplished players, won't be able to play that instrument and then they foist it on somebody that can't play at all. It seems like a kind of cruel way to begin. So I had this nylon string acoustic guitar, which was actually, you know, quite easy to play. Well, easy You know, once you knew what you were doing and then, you know, my dad and my mom very much being like, well, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it properly. So they suggested to me that I go for lessons, you know, uh, classical guitar lessons and music theory lessons, because they were very much of the old school belief that, you know, if you're going to be a musician, you've got to learn to read music. And you've got to be able to write music and you've got to do it all properly. So, you know, by the age of 13, I was going off to uh, music school every Saturday morning and learning uh, theory. And then, you know, a couple of nights a week, I'd go and um, learn how to play classical guitar, taught, taught by this elderly gentleman called Pierre Bethel. And, he man, he was so old. I mean, he must have been 90-odd. You know, he really was this old cat and he he was very strict and terribly unforgiving and if i didn't if i hadn't mastered what he showed me on that night and i didn't know it by the following week you know he would give me a hard time and and i didn't particular i was i dreaded it at the time because it was quite difficult but i stuck to it and i'm i'm glad that i did and my parents were were right to get me to do that I I learned to read and write music and I did all the exams and passed them all. But then as soon as it kind of started, you know, being in bands and stuff, I didn't use any of that. You know, it it, it hasn't really... The, The theory has helped me in terms of being able to know what the chords are and harmonies and scales and all that kind of stuff. So I suppose it was useful in that respect. You know, it was something to do other than you know, cause trouble on the streets, which is what you do at that age. Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, going on from what I just told you about, I started playing in bands uh, that had played working men's club. We called it the cabaret circuit, which basically meant that you wore sort of pretty uh, colourful clothes. It was the 70s, and you you played cover songs of the day that were in the charts. So I did that. I was in bands from about 1975 up until 1980. We were doing all that stuff, playing cover versions, learning other people's songs. You know, we all looked like we were in the Osmonds. That's the way everybody looked. We had blow-dried hair and, you know, white crimpline suits and... The, you know, the fashions of the day. And that's what we did. And then in about when the punk and new wave thing sort of kicked in, in the late 70s, then I started writing songs. And then it was like, okay, now we've got to form a group and write our own material. Because there was a big stigma in Liverpool in the 70s because of what the Beatles achieved, you know. It was such a, a long shadow to stand in that anybody from Liverpool was immediately kind of laughed at for even thinking about playing the original music, you know, because how are you going to compete with the likes of Hey Jude, you know, that kind of thing. And then the punk and new wave thing came along, which was basically where we just, you know, we kicked over all the statues and a lot of the music that we were listening to by that point was stuff, a lot of stuff from America we were listening to like the likes of the Velvet Underground and Scott Walker, uh, The Doors, um, Buffalo Springfield, The Birds, you know, it was it was a completely different thing from the Beatles. Well, maybe not with regards to The Birds, but it it we were looking across the water, we weren't looking inland, you know. And so then I started writing songs, and um, we. You know nothing. Nothing that we did could go boom tip or boom tip boom da da It had to be something else, and a lot of it came from tribal rhythms. We were very much into the music of another Liverpool band called Echo and the Bunny Man. We were big fans of Susie and the Banshees, the Cure, Joy Division, um, those kind of bands that were coming along at the time. And there was a lot of tom-tomming going on, dubba 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 And we, uh, our first single was a song called Nirvana, which was a song that actually ended up on, on the first High Works record. And that kind of went, dubba, dubba 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 And one day, I had this little pair of bongos that I bought on holiday, and I was sitting in my parents' bedroom, which was much bigger than mine, so I used to go in there to write when they were at work. And I, this would have been probably sort of towards the end of 1982, winter 82. And I started going, just like that for ages going, well, that's really great rhythm. I really like that. And then one day I just went, you know, dubba, dabba, dubba, dubba, love come down upon a sea. We are, we are, we are. And I went, oh, that sounds pretty good. Pretty simple, you know, two chords, C to... To F, and then that uh, Saturday when we'd rehearse at weekends, so we went into the rehearsal room and I said to Chris Shorrock, our drummer, you just go ba dabba, dooba da. And then I said to the, the bass player, Chris Layer, said it's just C to F. I haven't really thought about anything else. Let's just see how that sounds. So we counted it off and I started singing over this drum pattern, and Chris, the bass player, came up with kind of syncopated sympathetic part progression. And as soon as we hit the we are, we are bit, you know, we were just like, Well, wow, we we finally got something that is gonna pull us out of where we are, you know. And it was yeah, so that so that's so that's that's my third pivotal moment, Mike. Well you don't know it's gonna be a hit, you know because that I mean there's so many factors involved in actually having a hit record, as we all know. Um, but sometimes a tune will come along that has got a real immediacy to it. You know, it's like within, I think it was about 25 seconds, we were into the chorus. And I knew it was something special because Chris Shorrock's dad, who used to, you know, we were all really young. I mean, I think Chris Shorrock, the drummer, was still only about 17, round about this time. So his dad would bring him over to rehearsals. And when we'd finished the rehearsal, his dad came in to to pick him up. Um, And we were playing that song, and he just stopped at the door. Richard, his name was, Richard Shorick. No longer with us now, sadly. And um, he just, his jaw just hit the floor, man. And he went, that's it, you've done it, You've, you've got it, you've got the song you need, you've written your satisfaction or your She Loves You or one of those things, you know. And he was so excited that he went out to get his wife, Glennis, who was waiting in the car, And he actually said, you've got to come in and hear this. They've come up with the song that is going to change everything. And we, you know, when something like that happens, you you do kind of think, well, maybe this is something and, you know, here we are, what, 40 odd years later? Well, yeah, it is 40 years later. And as you rightly said, our biggest hit in America, we only really had one hit in America and it wasn't really a, an over the counter hit it was very much a, a, what they call used to call a turntable hit and in the age of the internet and and in the the age of nostalgia and so much love for the 80s the further we get away from the 80s the more people seem to appreciate how great they were because it was kind of laughed at for a long time you know it was when the the fashions looked kind of you know hokey and we look back and we all had well, I, I never had any of those fashions. I never had a mullet or any of that. I always wanted to look like I was in, you know, a 60s group. So, uh, fortunately, there's not any footage or photographs of me with a mullet or anything like that. But people, when they talk about the 80s, they hark back to the fashions, and, and they talk about a flock of seagulls or Culture Club or, you know, some of the more excessive um, fashions of, of the 80s and, and of the, the outrageous things that happened with MTV and the videos that cost, you know, $350,000 to make and, you know, people making videos in Rio on speedboats and all that, that, that's the kind of stuff of the 80s that people kind of frowned upon. But now it's very clear that there was so much great music made at that time and Birds Fly has been very kind to me to the article works and me especially from the United States in terms of the fact that you guys just keep bloody playing the thing all the time um, one thing I'll say about America is if you if you have something resembling a hit in the USA they'd never forget it whereas in um, the UK or Europe it, it tends to be oh that was back then and that now what are you doing you know so that's been very good and it keeps getting picked up in, in in adverts and, and in movies, and it was recently in, there's a, a TV show on Netflix called Stranger Things, and they ended up playing Birds Fly over the credits of one of the more outre episodes in the second series, and it was the only song that got played all the way through in Stranger Things, and so from that it's kind of kept the interest alive in, in the band and in the song, and I am forever getting Messages from people saying me, oh, I've just been in, you know, Walmart or whatever it is, and you know, playing your song, or just got in the car and your song was on, so, so you know, that that's been really great.
1: With such a huge stash of music. I wanted to know what some of Ian's personal favorites are from his catalog. Uh, some places for you to get started, if you—if all you know is "Birds Fly."
0: Um, yeah, it is its if you—you know—if you suddenly had to do a bit of research, what has Ian McNabb been doing since "Birds Fly"? You must go. Wow. Okay. Uh, what's the good one? You know. But well, what I would—I'd recommend two songs that people can find online, they're on streaming services, and that there are um, videos on YouTube. I'd, I'd point you in, in the direction of um, two songs that I'm particularly fond of, which are from, and I'm not just saying it because it's from the, the, the last album or the current album, but I do think that two, two of my favorites that, that I've done. Uh, one song is called, No One Tells A Lie Like A Dude With A Tie. Which is uh, kind of my take on you know the way we get treated by the people who run the world, and they just seem to constantly lie. So there's that one, and another one which which uh, has become a, a really big favorite, even though it's kind of only been around for eighteen months. Is a song called Harry Dean Stanton, which is obviously taken from you know the, the, the name of the great, the great Harry Dean Stanton, the character actor that's that has been a, been around for so long. Um, so if you're interested in what I'm up to now, I I would steer you in in the direction of those songs, but it's all good.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Ian, for taking the time to share your story. Ian lives and breathes music. And besides touring dates, I'm sure more solo material is on the way. You can check out his website at ianmcnab.com for more info. And a friendly reminder that you can also buy my book live through that on 90s artists and get 15 percent off using the promo code podcast 15 by ordering at the link on the podcast page and in addition my earlier book 80s redux is still available wherever you buy your books and if you like this show please subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out we've got lots of great things coming up you can also follow me on twitter and facebook at mike hippel photo all one word thanks for listening